Uh, so without further ado, Tom Lutz. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for missing Obama's speech. You're all recording it, right? Um, so, okay. Me too. Um, my wife has to see it live. So she's not here. No, it's okay. Um, because she's not here, I get to read some things that she doesn't like me to read. Um, uh, anymore when she's around. Uh, there are going to be two pieces. One, um, one from Africa and one from the Silk Road. One from Tanzania. Um, I have a friend here, John Adorney, from, from high school. Um, and he actually makes a little cameo in the introduction. We got picked up hitchhiking. <laughs> got picked up hitchhiking by a guy who said his name was Tom Sawyer. <laughs> and we thought he was a hippie. He had long, uh, long hair. And it turned out he was a Shakespearean actor and kept his hair long for his roles. And he wandered around. He didn't seem to live anywhere. He went from regional theater to regional theater and worked, uh, worked on the road. And I, we were just, I was so amazed by this guy. He also bought wine for us. And we started a fire on the side of the road in Connecticut. I don't know what, I don't know where we could have possibly, anyway, uh, it, was, it was one of these little glimpses of life on the road and life being lived in a way that my straight Connecticut suburban childhood knew nothing of. And I had no idea how to process it. I just kind of filed it. I thought, I'm going to figure this guy out sometime later. But it wasn't then. Um, anyway, John... John was there with Tom Sawyer. I suspect it's not his real name. <laughs> and I suspect that, you know, being 50-something with three 16-year-old boys um, on the side of the road drinking wine was probably illegal. But, <laughs> yeah, um, that didn't occur to us at the time either. We just thought he was very nice and cool. 227, this says. Okay, this is Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. This is a, the book is made up of a bunch of little things. There's a, an introduction that I was going to read from, but I, I tried reading it out loud at home, and it just doesn't work as a reading piece. Um, uh, it tries to get at my obsession to travel. I travel a lot. I travel every time, every chance I get. I like to travel weird. I like to travel low, and I like to travel wide, and I collect countries. So it's a, you know, I'm, there's aspects of it that I'm very proud of. Sometimes I th feel like the most interesting man in the world. And sometimes I feel like just a big pot side, like, like what, uh, overprivileged mofo. Anyway, um, but th that's the, the, uh, the introduction worries through some of those things. Here is the doctor in the casino. Um, I decide in that introduction that the thing that I really, um, that, that really keeps driving me is these little moments of accidental intimacy or something like intimacy that you drop, drop into on the road. So this is Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. The guidebook agreed with the State Department, do not go out at night in Dar es Salaam. And so on my first night in Tanzania's story leading city, I wandered downstairs in my hotel looking for the restaurant, which turned out to be a few floors up. Downstairs, instead, was a casino. I walked in to see if there was a poker game. There wasn't, just machines. And fell into conversation with a substantial-looking man in his 60s. He was a doctor, he said, in general practice. 
He was not well known in the place, and several people came by and paid their respects while he was more or less talking to me. I was watching the crowd, trying to figure out what I was seeing. I thought maybe a couple of the women were prostitutes, which turned out to be true in at least one case, and the men, I had to assume, were a mix of locals and businessmen from elsewhere. The doctor was talking to a voluble man in his 30s, whose blustery, back-slapping ways were being iced by the doctor's wise mane. <laughs> the young man felt it. He was large, six feet two or six feet three, north of 250 pounds, but he looked boyish in the face of whatever the doctor was telling him. I couldn't hear any of it because of the bloops and blinks of the casino machines and the quiet confidentiality of the doctor's way of speaking. But I could see that the doctor was doing most of the talking. The young man had no backup, no other chops behind his hail fellow shtick, and after a few minutes, he wandered away, defeated. I knew very little about the city. I was full of wonderment that I could walk around with the net worth of a village or two on my backpack, a camera, a cruddy laptop, a smartphone, a few hundred dollars, a passport, and some credit cards. Why didn't someone immediately bonk me on the head and take it all? The semi-pro camera itself from Costco was four times an average Tanzanian's in annual income. The city was bustling with the begging poor, the non-begging poor, the sidewalk entrepreneurial poor, and the grifting poor, as well as the shopkeepers and shoppers and churchgoers and police. It's run down but cosmopolitan. One sees the influence of Arabs and Indians and various European powers. Portuguese and English mostly, but French and German too, and more recently the Chinese. People of every ethnicity and race walked by, which meant a white guy wandering around in sneakers and a silly hat with a camera didn't cause much fuss. At a hotel casino at night, even less. Only the prostitute perked up. The doctor had been approached by another man, and again I got a sense that he was a personage. People were not approaching him like they were old friends, idly shooting the shit. They were deferential, and he was responding in each case, with, in each case it seemed, to some need. He was dispensing wisdom of a sort. When he finished with his latest petitioner, I asked him how often he came to the casino. I come to gamble because I find it relaxing, he said. I come when I am troubled about life. I noticed he didn't answer the question, but I said, you seem so relaxed and well-respected and content. It's hard to imagine you troubled. But of course, you are seeing my surface, he said. My surface remains very calm. But we don't know a man when we know his surface. And when do we know someone's troubles when, we first, when first we meet them? How long do you know a man before he reveals to you his pain? Certainly you don't think there are people who live untroubled lives, people who live without pain. No, of course you don't. You are in part flattering me, and in part condescending. No, no, it's okay. I am condescending to you even now. You, you wonder if the good doctor uh, if the good doctor has a gambling problem. And of course, whatever trouble leads a man to vices like gambling, gambling, gambling simply makes things worse, doesn't it? Gambling brings its own kind of troubles. I know this, and I do not assume I am somehow above such problems, but I will not allow it to happen. I bring only what I am prepared to lose. $100, no plastic, so I cannot get into that kind of trouble. He was a bit of a monologist, so the smallest prompts kept him talking. How are you doing tonight? Tonight? 
night I won around $1,000. Yes, $1,000 more or less. This will allow me to lose 10 times, and 10 times I will forget my troubles again. When I lose, I go home. And when I win, I go home. Meanwhile, my troubles are forgotten either way. I asked him about Tanzania, how he felt it was doing, and he described what he saw as the main issues facing his society, among them the problem of corruption, about which he had much to say, culminating in the nicely oratund conclusion, corruption is the great enemy of progress. I told him briefly my theory. Actually, I think I tell people this theory 17 times in the course of this book. <laughs> that uh, the United States is now the most corrupt country in the world. We just managed to control all the small corruption in favor of big corruption. We've regulated the giving of bribes by statute, and government servants are only allowed to be extorted by wealthy corporations. He found this mildly interesting, but was unconvinced. In fact, he was unconvinced by just about anything I had to say. It occurred to me that he was a man in the habit of dispensing opinion, not accepting it. An occupational habit, I supposed. We were very lucky, he said. Our first president did not want anything for himself. He did not want to collect wealth. Nairari, I said. Yes, he said, Julius Nyerere. He said it like I was one of the less bright interns following him on his rounds. Like he would say, yes, that is scrofula. Like implying that any fool could see that it was scrofula. He went on as soon as he could see I was chastened. You can go to Nyerere's house and see. He died not a rich man. His house is nice, of course, but it is just a house. You would never know he is president. But he is gone. We look around now and see, we do not want to be like our neighbors. We do not want to be like Kenya. We do not want to be like Uganda. Or Rwanda or Burundi, I said. Certainly, he said, a man not to be hurried. We do not want to be like Rwanda. We do not want to be like Burundi. We do not want to be like Mozambique. We do not want to be like Congo. And he raised an eyebrow. We do not, of course, want to be like Zimbabwe, and this got a higher eyebrow raised than the Congo. Another distinguished-looking man had come in, wearing gold wire-rimmed glasses. Excuse me, my doctor said, and turned to him. The woman who had been smiling at me from across the bar took advantage of this diversion to sit closer and suggest I join her. I said, thank you very much. I am very tired, and now I must go to sleep. I could help, she said. I thanked her again and said good night, and then thanked the doctor and said goodbye. He glanced over at me from his conversation. He had moved on, this time talking to a woman of about 50, and looked at me like he had never seen me before in his life. <laughs> so that's the, that's the that's the kind of thing. And uh, this, is, uh, this is a part of a, a longer chapter. And the longer chapters are just longer because they have two or three stories that happen in two and three days in a row. Um, because I'm, I'm otherwise trying to kind of observe the unities, you know, the kind of Aristotelian unities, and just do a single place at a single time, a single um, spot. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, sometimes successfully. And then... Uh, <clears throat> So this is the, the end of a chapter on uh, Uzbekistan, where I, I go from Tashkent to, uh, to uh, Samarkand. And um, 
couple of places. It ended up at my at the second or third wedding that I was at in in, Uzbek, in Uzbekistan's hospitality culture, um, and uh, this is called wedding in Bukhara. We each had a shot glass. The vodka was plentiful, and every 10 minutes or so, someone would boisterously decide it was time for a communal chug. I was at a wedding wedding dinner in Bukhara. Wolf, my new friend, was getting blearier. Tom! He would shout again, and the whole table shouted it in answer. He pulled me close, his hug now much more like an aggressive headlock. Wolf, I would respond, somewhat less enthusiastically than the time before. I hoped he didn't notice. Be careful, my new school teacher friend had said. The men, they drink too much. I had met the school teacher and Wolf. That wasn't his name. His name, Bori, also meant Wolf in Uzbek, the night before, out wandering through Bukhara in the dark. I had stepped out of my hotel and was strolling through the neighborhood when I heard music. I followed the sound through unlit streets, getting a little nervous about losing my way losing track of my hotel, and came across a large party in what was either a small park or a large empty lot which 20 tables had been placed. The music was from a PA set up for the occasion, and 80 or 100 people were eating and drinking. At first I thought it was an outdoor restaurant, but then it became clear it was a private party. I was about to turn away when an almost scarily beautiful woman, very dark hair, very light skin, very colorful eyes, approached me and said hello. She was around 25 and had honed a girl-next-door demeanor that pretended you weren't in a panic. It almost worked. English, she asked. American. Please come join us. My cousin is getting married. It's good luck to have strangers at a wedding. You will do us a favor. She took me by the arm warmly and pulled me in. She led me to a table of the mother and grandmother of the bride. This was the rehearsal dinner, and people did not seem entirely relaxed. Not split into camps exactly, but certainly careful with the new in-laws. A few women in their 40s and 50s sat at one end of the table, laid out with cold and hot mitzes, and a cohort of sturdy women in their 70s and 80s were gathered at the other. One of them could have been a hundred, with paper skin and clouded eyes. I was introduced to the older women first, so the matriarchs could approve of my presence. I wasn't sure what the cousin said to them, but they looked at me blankly, like they didn't expect anything particularly good or bad to come from my showing up like this. (laughs) The middle-aged women and I all smiled at each other, and I bowed to them, thanking them for their hospitality. One of them, the schoolteacher, responded in perfect English. She was a very nice and perceptive woman in her late 40s, dressed the way nuns dress now, with a mustache and very heavy eyebrows and extremely intelligent eyes. My strikingly beautiful new friend took me by the arm to another table or two and introduced me. In between, she talked about the trouble she had because her boyfriend was Russian, which meant that her father would kill him if he knew, but she didn't care. And then she pointed to an open spot on the bench and said, please, sit, eat. The table included a number of other foreigners plucked off the street, a Japanese student, a Canadian couple in their 30s, and a Danish man in his 60s. They were all dying to get away, except, <laughs> except the Danish man who was thrilled to be there and kept saying, almost under his breath, this is quite amazing. <laughs> Wolf came over to the table and saying, America! 
grabbed me. He was a big man, well over two meters, and built like Paul Bunyan, stood me up and hugged me. He said something in Russian, saw that I didn't get it, and he called out to the school teacher. She came over to translate. He wants you to know that he heard you were American, which is good with him, the school teacher said. <laughs> Wolf interrupted her. He wants, she said, that you know I am a school teacher and that I am a good translator. She shrugged at this, like it was easier to say it than not, although she didn't see the point. And he says that you need to come with him to meet the fathers of the bride and groom. Thank you, I said. And that was when she said, to be careful. <laughs> Wolf walked me a half dozen tables down to a large round one full of men. The fathers of the bride and groom were introduced. I, of course, remained unclear who was who. The men were relaxed into a solid vodka buzz, smoking. Wolf was the ringleader and the drunkest, refilling people's vodka glasses at a fairly alarming pace, already in that part of the evening when a large amount of vodka was splashing around onto the table and nobody noticed or cared. There's one too many vodkas in that sentence, isn't there? Well, there was one too many vodkas on the table. Um, uh, Wolf objected loudly if anyone, including the star American guest he had one arm wrapped around, tried to drink only half of their shot after any of his innumerable toasts. As he got drunker, his grip around my shoulders, slipped up to my neck, his embrace becoming more like a mixed martial arts move. <laughs> Tom! <laughs> he would toast to me. Wolf, I would answer. I was trapped, which made me more alert than woozy, despite all the shots. His clinch got tighter. He was sweating, eyes red. Was he drooling a little? He started yelling something at the table that made them laugh. The school teacher came over and stood on my right side. And the beautiful friend came up on Wolf's, on Wolf's right, and they said something to him, loud enough for the table to hear. And the school teacher said to me, in English, that they were going to take me to visit the bridal party. Although Wolf clearly didn't want to let me go and had to give me one last chokehold squeeze around the neck, he let me leave with them. The blood started to return to my body. Wolf said something at the table that made them laugh nervously out of their own fog, but the women had already spirited me away. Since this was the rehearsal dinner, the bride was sequestered with her retinue, which seemed, uh, which as far as I could tell, was an entirely pro forma ceremonial restriction as a constant parade of visitors of all ages and sexes came through and did hugs all around. She wasn't hidden away so much as given a receiving room. A dozen or so people were there when Cousin Beautiful and the school teacher brought me in. They all seemed blessedly sober and unthreatening, and the bride was even more beautiful than her cousin. She was dressed in some traditional clothing that I assumed was requi required for her, part that par for her part that night. All of it very 1,001 nights, flowing sheer silk with spangles and moments of embroidery. And with the encouragement of her girlfriends and relatives, she was hamming it up, performing for me and for them. I once again, although in a very different way, had a rush of feeling both very drunk and on high alert. I snapped some pictures, which made her ham it up even more, and then I noticed that she was directing it all at me, not anyone else in the room. She was flirting with me. Is this what the random visitors are for? <laughs> the school teacher and Cousin Beautiful were at the entrance of the room in conversation with a man, paying us no mind. The bride encouraged me to take more pictures and started hiding behind her veil, 
coquetting, ridiculously adorable, and flirting outrageously, flush, full of her girlish power. Was this what was supposed to be happening? A kind of bachelor party-like last chance to be unmarried? I had an image of Wolf crashing through the door and landing one of those enormous fists in my face. The bride had coaxed a little sister over to take my camera and snap some pictures of the two of us, and she was now kissing me on the cheek for the camera, wrapping herself around me, crazily sexual it seemed to me, and I glanced up to find the school teacher looking at me. But her expression gave no clue. Was she disgusted, mildly amused, neither? Was she jealous? In which direction? <laughs> the beautiful cousin came up to me and took me by the arm. The bride whispered, whispered into my ear one last impos impossible promise in Uzbek, which of course I could not understand. I was very drunk. The beautiful cousin walked me out of the room, hustled me past the tables. Wolf seemed to be yelling at one of the men at his, banging on it with his fist, and out through the gate where she had first brought me in. Go now, she said. Go away. Good time. She handed me a small, small slip of paper with a phone number and gave me a gentle push. I wandered drunkenly amid domed madrasas under the clear moonlight and somehow ended up back at my hotel. Oh. Is that enough? You think I should do one more? Can I do a depressing one? Yeah, let's end on a depressing note. I don't know. It, it is maybe it is too depressing. It's about it's about Tibet. What do you do with I, I, what, what, I don't know. I you know I wouldn't even. I, nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and whose phone number was it? I have no idea. Um, yeah, one more. Okay. Let me let me think for a second. A depressing. You want the depressing one? You want the Tibetan one? Sure. Okay. All right. It's um. All right. I'll do that. The Albanian one's kind of funny. <laughs> okay. Here, let's let's let, let's see let's see if we need a, a chaser after Tibet. Let's try Tibet. Okay. Um, this, this, was a, this was a very surprising trip for me. Sitting in an upstairs cafe in Lhasa, watching the pilgrims circling the Jokong Temple, I noticed a boy on the roof next door with an automatic weapon, peering down at the street. He wore the green camo uniform of a Chinese soldier, along with a helmet and a bulletproof vest. He was a sniper on patrol. During the hour I was at the cafe, he didn't move a muscle. He looked about 16, but was probably older. I didn't know how many snipers were deployed around the town, but the new city and most of the old were crowded. Were crowd, was crowded with old with Chinese soldiers. In the new city, armored personnel carriers drove by, and the old groups of foot soldiers walked in formation. Individual officers, officers strode with purpose, and armed guards stood at doorways and gates. The army was keeping watch enforcing a restless peace, and the endless pilgrims circling the temple with their prayer paraphernalia were confronted every seven or eight minutes with a small phalanx of five or six painfully young Chinese soldiers in full riot gear, plexigas shields, automatic weapons, helmets, visors at the ready, 
walking in formation against the pilgrim traffic, always watching, waiting for revolt. Behind them, a thousand miles of Tibetan plain run north and east like a visual cone. One can advance farther and farther into the vast tableau, but the horizon never arrives. As the clouds lounge overhead, the broad plateau expands forever. The nomadic animals chew the earth. Yurts park. Sometimes, lured by electricity, their owners abandon them and build out of stone next to the railway. The train from Jining moves at 120 miles an hour, 120 kilometers an hour, they say, but in this vastness, it seemed to crawl. Yak herds transform the emptiness briefly, then disappear, apparently oblivious to the train as it slides by. Every hundred kilometers or so, modernity clears its throat in the form of a gleaming concrete station, each threaded by aluminum and copper to the next for a thousand kilometers across the plain, like a necklace of the gods with tiny white concrete beads. The empty stations were kept Communist Party clean and disquietingly attended to by ever-watchful ever Chinese police, even here in the middle of absolute nowhere. One station reports its altitude, 5,068 meters, 16,627 feet, higher than any train in Peru, half a mile higher than the top of the tallest Rocky Mountain. The five other bunks in my cabin and those in the next few were taken by a group of school teachers from Shanghai. The English teacher was a moralist who found it unethical for people, Dorothy, you're not going to like this, found it unethical for people to keep pets while humans starve in the world. We talked about income distribution, about pets, about the dogs and cats becoming more popular with the new bourgeoisie. In Chinese, I was told, a cat says Mao. I asked if it was Mao, as in Mao Zedong. The ethicist frowned. The rest looked at their feet. <laughs> Whoops, too soon. At the Botella Palace, that fabled, massive, plastered cathedral to nothingness, the pilgrims pray for deliverance and succor. They pray for the return of the 14th Lama, for the days before these Han Chinese, Chinese moved in and took over, before the last days settled down like a smothering fog. They implore the spirits of all the Panchen and Dalai Lamas, asking them to spend, send their spirit messengers to confound the Chinese army. They pray to a thousand Buddhas and saints that the Chinese will all go back to Beijing. Of course, that will never happen. Many of the pilgrims have more pressing prayers, one couple from the country, obvious from the way they hesitated to speak to the monks and bowed and held their hats, carried an obviously sick child in their arms. They gave the monk in the room of the seven Buddhas their money. He discussed it with them, and I wished I could know what they were saying. Was he offering a tiny quid pro quo? Would their daughter live a few more days? Many of the other pilgrims had come in from the country too, but many were daily petitioners from the capital. They walked briskly and threw their money at the feet of the statues, put it in the boxes in front of the shrines, dabbed spoons of yak butter into the lamps in what looked like a practiced routine. The monks followed behind, swept the bills off the floor, emptied the boxes, and brought the crinkled pile of currency to a desk where a monk straightened out the bills, bundled them, and recorded the amounts. In almost every room in the palace, and every room at the Jokang Temple, and rooms in many other monasteries, a monk sat at a table counting money, clapping batches of bills down on the desk, wrapping in them in bundles of what? 
100. Then they would count them again, flipping through the edge of the bundles with ex expert fingers before adding it to neat stacks. But the petitioners are so poor. I felt a rage like Martin Luther's. Their baby is dying. Don't take their money. Send them to the hospital. I wanted to nail my theses to the door of the Potala Palace. All my life I'd read about the superiority of Tibetan Buddhism, how shallow we Westerners were who thought we knew the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, how contaminated we were by instrumentalism and materialism and desire, and how our yearning for enlightenment condemned us to chase our own tails through an eternity of fruitless misappropriation. But now I wanted to scream at Alan Watts and the rest, Western Buddhism is closer to pure Buddhism. Tibetan Buddhism practices a travesty, the same old religious con, trimming the impoverished suckers while the priests keep the nicest digs in town. The poor yak-herding dolts take their entire tiny pile of disposable income and throw it on the floor in front of cartoon statues of semi-mythical saints, and the monks don't even look at them. The country folk are the marks. The monks just rake up the money and put it in their tiny stacks and enter it in their tidy books. All around the Potala and all around the Jokang, the faithful trudged, prostrated themselves, prayed, twirled their charms, spun their bells, and burned great fronds of sacred herbs, the air as thick with smoke as Dickens' London, burning the throat and irritating the eye. People seemed intensely downtrodden to me, like they'd given up completely and now just practiced out of habit. I was reminded of the ghost dance cults of the, of the 1890s in America when the wars were over and the Indians were fucked and there was no going back and they prayed and they danced and entered a trance and kept dancing. One assumes the ghost dance did for people then what the Pilgrim's March in Lhasa does now, confirming some belief in an order of things that was not simply of this world, the world disappearing before their eyes. What the Indians got for their troubles were the wounded Minasker, the massive redeployment of US troops, and the death of Sitting Bull. The Tibetans can't hope for much better. The Chinese troops were everywhere, not just on the roofs and not just in the riot gear, wherever worshippers sleepwalk in circles. The army also regularly dispatched a flotilla of trucks fitted with loudspeakers, blaring at anyone with an earshot as they drove through the city. I asked a woman what they were saying. They announced that the army is a beneficent force for life in Lhasa, she said. The army, the trucks say, is friend of the people of Lhasa and friend of all people of Tibet. She knew she didn't have to add comment. In the street, I saw another young Tibetan woman, a girl really, in jeans, modern, wearing a pink and white trucker's cap. The legend on the cap was, we fuck the fake shit. <laughs> I had no idea. I motioned to the cap and asked, but she had no English and just smiled. I later saw the cap for sale around town. It struck a chord, and I knew that whatever subtleties I might be missing in the syntax, it was definitely anti-fake shit. <laughs> As the soldiers patrolled the streets, weighed down with riot gear, they sucked up the thick, oxygen-weak air, particulate rich from burnt offerings dedicated toward their expulsion. A young deer, not quite a fawn anymore, made its way into one of the upper courtyards of the monastery. It walked delicately across the cobblestones toward two Chinese officers who seemed spooked. What is this? The spirit animal? Come to mock us? I imagine the officers temporarily confused about how to write the report. 
The Chinese had built in recent years, directly across from the Potala Palace, a truly hideous monument to socialist progress, a sword-shaped affront to the Dalai Lama's former home. It's really one of the most ugly monuments I've ever seen. Its sole purpose is to remind people who is in power. But at this point, it may be that every shopping center and apartment building and gleaming office building in the new Han Lhasa across the street from the old Tibetan Lhasa is the more powerful and thoroughgoing challenge. I actually talk about this in an early cha earlier chapter about Kashgar. The Chinese and all of these, all of the kind of on the fraying edges of their empire are building Han cities next to the ethnic minority city. And uh, rather than kind of, uh, although more recently than that, they did bulldoze a good part of the old city in Kashgar. But up until then, the, the policy was build these cities, and they're called developing zones, build new cities next to the old city to kind of overwhelm with numbers and, and pay people, pay Han Chinese to move into these new cities. Um, so there are these kind of new gleaming cities next to the old, old um, Uyghur cities in the west and the Tibetan cities and the, um, all the other ethnic minorities. Um, the Tibetans find ways to protest. They mock the Chinese in song and dance, ridicule, ridicule them with classic nightclub ethnic masquerade. One of the most popular shows in Lhasa includes a skit of caricatured Brahmin Chinese in Mandarin garb with pasted-on Fu Manchu mustaches dancing around and playing pedantic, stuck-up idiots. The Chinese soldiers remain stoic beneath the victory towers of medieval Tibetan armies. Another shock. So many of these beautiful gold ornaments atop Tibetan monasteries are triumphal symbols of bloody battles won. The monks' islos is historically no more pacifist than that of the Chinese soldiers. The nuns tend their convent's flowers. The monks debate. They debate the meaning of life and death, of the death of thousands in the uprising in 1959 as the Dalai Lama escaped, of the untold deaths during the destruction of the 6,000 temples during the Cultural Revolution, of the 450 who died during protests in 1989, of the 400 who were killed in March of 2008. They debate the future of Tibet as if it hasn't already arrived and make their food into magical shapes to ward off an enemy that's all around, staggeringly wealthy and heavily armed. A lavish banner spanned the road to the airport, reminding all who passed, the developing zone is very amazing. <laughs> the pilgrims pray and spin their golden wheels. It's a little, it is a little depressing. What's that? Yeah. So, that's, is that enough? Should we do questions and answers? We should do one more. Which one? The chaser. The chaser? We should do the chaser? She's the boss. Okay. Yeah, you're the boss. Boss. Um, okay. What time is it? We're all right. Okay. Um, all right. All right. Let me let me see if I can if I can do Albania. Maybe too long. It might be too long. I'll skip part of it. Okay. Albert, his name was. And he stopped me as I was walking through the lobby of my hotel in Toronto one evening in May 2012 after dinner. He asked me something I didn't catch. And in response, I winged it with a, yes, hi. <laughs> he 
offered his hand and we shook. He looked a bit like Harry Dean Stanton, a lifetime of L&M cigarettes etched into his face with the same ambiguous age, 60-something, 70-something, and the same slicked-back hair. He may have been used a bit more pearl cream than Harry. Where are you from, he asked. America. I know, that's what I asked you. You were an American, and you said yes. What city? Los Angeles. Ah, California. San Francisco is the most beautiful city in California. Yes, maybe. With the beautiful bridge. And San Diego is also more beautiful than Los Angeles. So you've been to California, I said. No, but you know, I see pictures, news, movies. Santa Barbara is also a beautiful city, more beautiful than Los Angeles. I can name all the states and their capitals. I lived in Greece many years. I speak Greek, Serbo-Croatian, German, Spanish, English, Italian. I wanted to come to the U.S. in 92, 93. I gave money to a lawyer. Not much, $200. Gone. Mafia. He mimed, spitting. A hotel in the middle of the city's Soviet-style monumental center. The hotel was in the middle of the city's Soviet-style monumental center. Next door was a giant plaza dedicated to a flamboyant bronze statue of 15th century national hero Sheshi Skenderbej on horseback. Sheshi was a new arrival here. For decades, the square had been watched over by Stalin. Gardeners had puttered, puttered around it to little effect, making no headway against the architecture's brutal aesthetic privation. In midday, the sparse flat offered no protection from the merciless late summer sun. As Harry and I talked, it was getting into early evening, and the air was finally becoming cool. Still, Harry had a slight sheen on his forehead. I probably did, too. The problem with Albania, he said, I don't know. The people are sick in the head. There's something wrong with them. But it's better now without Hosha. These guys, he said, meaning the politicians, they only, he blabs, he mimes blabbering on, they lawyer, they talk, just talk, they fuck, they lawyer, the politics it is, he, he searched for the word, kept his face very close to mine, too close, a prodigious stench of cigarette and drink was overpowering the deep garlic and wine of my own meal. He gesticulated, looking both ways and leaning in, confidential. I noticed that I was breathing through my mouth. A number of the hotel workers, as they walked by, wondered if this was a situation. Corrupt, I offered. Yes, corrupt, yes, but more than that, dirty. I think, I said, trotting out my favorite horse, hobby horses, <laughs> the U.S. Corporation, corporate company. Yes, he said dismissively, you have the elephant for the rich people and the donkey, Obama, and everyone talk, takes the money. But here, we have 70, 80 political parties. They all take the money, and the two big ones, they take the most. One pretends to be democracy. One pretends to be socialism, but really, it is nothing. It is nothing, this new democracy, just change of ownership. Um, and then I do a little description of um, arriving from uh, from Macedonia and, and, and driving through the mountains. Uh, Albania is just mountain after mountain after mountain. So you should kind of uh, switch backing up, switch backing down, switch backing up, switch backing down. And um, it's, uh, it's a mess. There are these stripped carcasses of industrial buildings haunting the landscape every once in a while. Um, and there are everywhere... Well, I'll pick it up here. The country looked like a museum of itself. Tiny concrete monuments to the madness and genius of Enver Hosha were everywhere. As Americans contemplated backyard bomb shelters in the 1960s, Hosha presently assumed that wars would remain non-nuclear for some time, and so embarked on a program of bunkerization. He decreed that people had to build individual 
conventional bomb shelters, and 700,000 half-buried bubbles of reinforced poured concrete were built to withstand any conventional bombardment of the day. The idea was that people could shoot out of them in case of invasion. OSHA had the, come to power in the chaos left by World War II and, main, and maintained Kim Jong-il-like total control until his death 40 years later. He had closed the country to international travel and ruled through a cult of personality, information control, and terror. He fought wars of words with his neighboring dictator Tito. He broke with the Soviet Union because Khrushchev was a reformist. He broke with China because they allowed Nixon to visit. He was the last true believer. While he was alive, he never ended his country's state of war with Greece. Uh, the story goes that he forced the designer of the tiny dome structure. I'm going to skip this. Um, a little bit more about the, the uh, these, it's just a, such a uh, Ismail Kadari. Have you read Kadari, the great uh, Albanian novelist? Very, very Ismail Kadari place. It's just you get there and you just. I don't know if it's because I read him first. I don't know. Uh, I asked Albert if it was right if things were actually a bit worse now because they looked worse to me. Yes, things are worse in some ways. He said, "30 percent have no work." With Hosha, everyone was working. Everyone, Albania workers, they make 10, 12 dollars a day. Workers in America. $100 a day. These people in government, they talk democracy, but in heart, no democracy. Ideology. Mafia. He talked like a manic association test, nonstop, emphatic. He'd, I'd given up trying to interject. He really didn't need any help. He was 70, I decided, maybe more. You know the big problem here? Pollution, he said, switching topics with abandon. Everywhere, the streams, the air, the sea, you see it. The bags of garbage everywhere. This is a big problem. It wasn't wrong. Piles of plasticized trash scatter the landscape. Albanians' relation to garbage is odd and seemingly contradictory. They will meticulously sweep and wash a family grave in a small country graveyard, trim the weeds around it, festoon it with new plastic flowers and a picture in a shiny standing frame, and yet leave the pile of picnic detritus, plastic bags, bottles, rinds, bones, and the old faded plastic flowers two feet away. People flop bottles, wrappers, bags of miscellaneous crap, anything out of their cars and trucks, anywhere. It's one of those over-the-wall cultures. It's true, Albert agreed. People, Albanian people, inside, it's all clean. But shoot, they throw things out the window. They clean house and throw dirt in the street and next yard. Their garbage is always problem of somebody else. I like American people. I meet them, I say hello. They're good here, pokes his heart. They have good ideology, good mentality, but the politics, no good. <laughs> Since he had rejected my version, endemic corruption, with what was wrong with our politics, I said, why no good? In 1991... He said, people came here. I met congressmen, big people. Okay, not biggest, but middle-level political congressmen. But after 92, 93, they don't like. They don't come back. 96, 97, they don't like. Then 98, 99, everyone gets guns, starts shooting. Finally, Kosovo, they stop. And he shrugs, 2000, 2002, 2003. He mimes rising water. Things are getting better. Not good, but better. But still, the congressman, he doesn't come back. That's what's wrong with American politics, is that congressmen who were interested in Albania lost interest. The year that the Soviet Union collapsed, 1991, was also the year that Albania shook off the Hosha regime, which after his death in 1985 had been steered by his henchman, Ramiz Alia, and began its current experiment in dirty democracy. The 1996-97 reference is to one of the most spectacular Ponzi schemes in history, a Bernie Madoff-level con, if, if not even more severe. Aided and embedded by some of the most important Albanian politicians, 80% of the adult population invested in a pyramid scheme. 
People sent money back from overseas and mortgaged their homes in a get-rich-quick frenzy, all, of, all for a promised 20% minimum return. Some $1.2 billion later, the so-called investment collapsed, sucking most people's money out of the country in a matter of months. The ringleader escaped to Switzerland, over a billion dollars in a country where the only airline has a total of three planes, planes an average of 23 years old, all owned by foreigners. It was in this context that Qadari asked, can a country's people be better than its planes? The other reason people lost an interest in Albania is that without a totalitarian state scaring everyone shitless, it turns out not to have a particularly pliable workforce. More than one person called it this doing-nothing country. In Beirut, I met a couple um, other re returned emigres, a father and adult son, who still lived in St. Louis, just back on a vacation. They looked like hick Midwesterners. The son, large, slack-mouthed, cow-licked, and t-shirted. The father, a pudgy, nerdy bank teller in a check t-shirt and high belt. It was all very Missouri, except for the father's bling, a rapper's ransom of gold watch, gold chains, gold bracelet, gold rings, his American wealth conspicuously displayed on his unlikely person. St. Louis has a large Albanian community, they told me, 500 families. It was large enough that these two had not needed to learn much English in the 15 years they had lived there. The son didn't say much, and I suspected the father was talking to me in part to show off for his brother, who was with him, and who understood not a word. I've been America three presidents, the father said efficiently. Obama, Bush, and Beale, he said, <laughs> bending back a finger for each. For me, Beale was best president. <laughs> Do you like Obama, I asked. Look, Republicans is for rich people, he said, echoing Albert. They both looked my thumbs, like my thumbs down for Bush. Bullshit, the kid said. But for me is Beale, the father said. I asked how they liked St. Louis. America, yeah, I like, the father said, but too much working. <laughs> now the kid was ready to join in. Yeah, he said, excited. Everyone is working, working all the time, and tired. And tired, he said, impersonating average American whining. I'm working, working, tired, working. Always they tired and working. Bullshit, he said, with real feeling. Part glee, part anger. Too much working all the time, the father agreed, bestowing on his son a nod of approval. The Albanian brother had, lost, had the lost look of someone who knows he doesn't understand, and not just the language. The three of them were an Albanian Dreiser novel. The hapless character, the big lug of a kid, doomed to gaze from afar as the rich, the smart, the lucky, and the beautiful enjoy a life that leaves him alternately sullen and enraged. The successful character, awaiting his fall, his father, flashing gold. You could tell looking at him that he felt those chains swinging at his chest, always, the heft of his watch, always. You could see his body's awareness and the way he held that arm, the tension in his short, rounded torso. The rings, the bracelet, the necklaces, he felt them all, and he was buoyed by the image of the envy he imagined them arousing. I saw him moments away from some dreadful Hurstwood blunder. Every once in a while, he would touch the bracelet on his wrist, touch the watch, keeping the dream self alive. And then the sweet, bewildered brother, gone gray, wondering, who are these strangers? Why does my brother wear those gold chains? What good do they do him? Why is my nephew so unhappy? 
What right does he have? The old world and the new world, so unequal to the task, each in their own way, so equally mired in discontent, so equally capable of self-regard and self-loathing. The seven o'clock call for prayer reminded me that Beirat, the stone city on a hill, was in Muslim Europe. And when the second mosque's muzin sounded, I realized that my room was right at speaker height and nearly equidistant from the mosques, one just a little louder. Competing versions of Islam were at work. The bitter rivalry played out at every call to prayer. The less loud mosque sounded like it was being mocked by the other. Allah Akbar! Followed immediately by a staticky, Allah Akbar, for all the world like a big brother taunting a younger. In the hotel hallway in Tirana, I had asked Albert about, about Islam. Ah, he said, pointing at the air in dismissal. Nobody cares. Mosque, church, pa. Where do you go now? You have car? Yes, I go to the, I'll go to the coast tomorrow and down to Apollonia, I said. You have four-wheel? No, just a small car. Pa, he said. No good. You need four-wheel dirt to see real Albania. Albania has terrible roads, which is, of course, one of the things I love about it. Most of them switch back across mountain ranges. Um, one day, far from the beaten path, I came across two cops with a roadblock. They had a driver in a 20-year-old sedan pulled over, one leaning in the driver's window, the other at the passenger's window. The driver's side cop flagged me down and presented the standard poor country puzzle. Am I expected to pay a bribe or not? He didn't speak English, but asked me with gestures where I was going. And I told him I was heading for a town called Belch. He wagged his finger twice and motioned me to turn around. No, I said, look, I pointed to my GPS, um, which showed a road leading to Belch. He shook his head like he'd seen this nonsense about a road to Belch before. <laughs> I like bad road, I tried to mime, but it was hard to get across. I pointed one last time up the road, imploring. He shrugged and shook his head one last time, suggesting with the slightest nod that the discussion was over. I thanked him and turned around. He was right. Even the good road, the one he sent me down, was pitted with gigantic potholes, hard to traverse without bottoming me out, average 15 kilometers an hour. On the main road into Tirana, partway up a steep pass, I ran into mountainside traffic jam caused by a wedding party. The cars festooned, people in wedding clothes, all parked in the right lane along a hairpin turn, forcing uphill and downhill traffic to take turns. The hood was up on the fanciest car in the stalled procession, a large 10-year-old Mercedes, maybe rented for the occasion. The people inside were glum. A couple of men under the hood had their fancy sleeves rolled up and were arguing about the engine. Wedding guests milled around as bored kids threw rocks over the cliff. I drove around them eventually, and then around a few herds of sheep, and continued on. For the next 20 kilometers, a series of others' cars, decorated for the wedding, raced past me to the rescue. That's the kind of country it was, a place where your limo breaks down on the way to get married. The basic, basic business of life was hard, and it didn't stop for weddings. In other places, everyone adapts, moves on, heads to the church, leaving a volunteer behind to mind the car. Not in Albania. I could read it in the simple body language of the fuming bride, sitting in the heat without moving in the bridal chariot. She was arriving at that church in that Mercedes, not in anything else. There had been a dream, and nobody was giving it up. <laughs> Francine Prose's Albanian pro protagonist Lula in My New American Life says, quote, the Balkans have no expression for win-win situation. <laughs> In the Balkans, they said, no problem, and the transla translation was, you are fucked. <laughs> Lula, like Albert, was an optimist. Albert was emigrating again. I'm going to Singapore, he said. 
700 euros plane, I take $2,000 and I look, I see. I think I can work there. You know, Singapore is very nice, a city state. Here, Albania, work $300 a month with supplemental, supplemental work, 4,000 in a year. In Singapore, $5,000 in one month. He shrugged, case closed. He had a home temporarily. He was 70. He was talking to an American in a hotel. He was going to look for work in Singapore. Okay, that was a lot. Should we skip this question and answer? <laughs> just go to the signing? Yeah. I was wondering, just in, in terms of the, you know, when you're writing, it's like it's, mm -hmm. like it's a travel genre problem. How much of what you know from other sources, how do you keep on meshing to your own experience, uh, you know, the stuff about the background of it or what's actually going on? I mean, it seems like it's, it's a hard balance to achieve. It is, and you know, massive ignorance helps quite a bit. Like not having too much background. I mean, truly. I mean, there's, there, there are places where I where I really don't know that much about the, about the place when I write about it, and I and I like to be a little you know candidish, you know, a little little bit like a little uh, the innocent abroad, um, and not and not actually know what I'm, what I'm talking about. But of course, in, in these in these places where I'm quoting people and quoting other other writers. Um, I'm, I'm giving away my sources, um, and in some places where I where I do a little bit of history about about Hosha's regime and when he was in and when he was out and knowing about the Ponzi scheme, some of it some of it is um, the, the most successful ones I think are the ones where I learn that from people I'm talking to, and that's of course what I'm always hoping for. But sometimes you got to cheat. I don't know to that. Um, so the development centers are they meant to exclude? Uh, the Tibetans, or are they meant to integrate the Tibetans no. sort of in a corrupt way, or? The, they're meant to overwhelm the Tibetans. They're meant to just kind of take over by, by, by with overwhelming numbers and overwhelming economic. Um, and yes, eventually, I think the, the idea is, and and um, <clears throat> you know, this is a, this is a place that plays a very long game. Um, and so the, the thought is, uh, 150 years from now. Yeah, the Tibetans will be uh, uh, like uh, some of the other little Chinese minorities are. There are places where in China where I went to an ethnic city, and it's basically just a tourist attraction now. It's like a colonial Williamstown, Williamsburg, or something like that. It's just it's just a little colonial Williamstown. Williamsburg, Williamsburg is the hipster Brooklyn place, right? Yeah. Okay. Other way. Anyway, it, it's uh, the uh, it's a it's a little it's a tourist trap, and uh, and and that's all, and that's it. And people dress up for the tourists in their in their native garb, and that's all that's left of the culture. Nobody's excluded. That's the that's the genius and the kind of the the I think the kind of somewhat I mean the deeply cynical genius of this idea, which is rather than go in and try to convert people to a different way of life, rather than tr go in and try to change anybody's ways of living in the world you just build around them until they're till they become a tiny part of the world that you've built do they move or i mean i can't believe they just stand there. i mean what do they do there's there is that's why the, i find i think that's so depressing there's just nothing there's nothing to do i mean they they the, the tibetans live in 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 uh, in tibetan lhasa and the and the and the uyghurs live in uyghur kashgar for instance um, i was in a i was in a little um, cafe in in kashgar a, a, a yak stew place um, you know 
25 cents a bowl yak stew place in Kashgar, and um, everybody was Uyghur. Um, and uh, I was asking, the, I was asking this taxi driver who knew a little bit of English. I was asking him about Islam and his and, and I said, you know, tell me why, why someone like me would would want to be Muslim? You think everybody should be Muslim? Why, 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 tell me why I should be. And he said, because. Allah is great and Muhammad is his messenger. Got really mad and then he just calmed back down and said, and then we talked about other things and I said, what do you, what do you think about the, the Han Chinese? And things have changed a lot. He was about 40 years old. I said, things have changed a lot in the last 20 years, in the last 25 years since you were a kid. Um, what, do you, what do you think about the, the Chinese moving in? And he said, um, the Chinese, they don't believe in anything. And there's this kind of sense that there's no, you know, in 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 these in in these cities. I mean, there's a very active Uyghur resistance to the Han Chinese, and that breaks out into open warfare. In fact, uh, 150 people died in Urumqi the day I left, um, in kind of pitched battle with with police, with Han Chinese police. Um, and so it's it's a it, it, in certain places it breaks out into open hostilities. And in Tibet, as I as I read in those kind of statistics of various massacres, that's because there were moments where the resistance flared. At well, the day I was there, all I saw was kind of dejection and a kind of attempt to kind of keep some relation to the, the culture that they, these people had grown up in, where while the, the new culture um, simply kind of started to literally overshadow it with skyscrapers next door. So it's like almost more coercive than Palestinian and the Jewish settlements. It's, more it's a very different, yeah, very different, yeah, very different, yeah. Jamie. Um, what kind of, do you take notes? How are you, how do you use it to record? Yeah, I take, I take notes. I, 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 now have a, I now have a little tape recorder. I, I have not used it very much with people, but I, um, I, I, I often record the radio in the car and, that, and things like that. But, I, but I, 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 I haven't, I feel a little funny about being CIA, you know, in my little secret microphone, and I and I don't want. Can I can I record you? Is not exactly a way to encourage intimacy. Um, right. I, I sometimes I sometimes pretend I'm checking something on my phone and and take notes because I want to get somebody's syntax down, and I know I know that'll escape me if I don't get it right away. And I sometimes like go to the bathroom and I quick write but you know, write down things like that. Um, with this, I mean, with Albert, for instance, I was in the hotel. I immediately went upstairs and wrote down everything I could remember because I just loved the way he talked. You know, yeah. Yeah, I, that, when people ask me what I do, I, I always say I'm a writer. I always say I'm a writer. And so they're, I, I consider them forewarned. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't, and I and I don't. I do change some identifying characteristics. Um, in in a lot of cases, I mean, there are people who tell me things that they probably would not not want known um, about them. So I, I I change some details to make it a little bit harder to identify. Do you ever embellish the conversations at all when these Of course not. This is nonfiction. <laughs> I mean, more clear or more. Yeah, we have, yes, I, 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 I don't remember, I don't know anymore how close to the, the actual conversation any of these conversations are, because I took notes of them, so there's a little distance already, there's no, they're not exactly right. I read those notes sometimes years later. You know, I, never, I never write any of them while I'm in the place. 
these are always there's a, it takes me too long to figure out what I think or where the story is and so uh, that sometimes I'm often writing about Tibet while I'm in Uzbekistan and about Uzbekistan while I'm in Ecuador um, so it's a uh, and so there's a uh, that so that's the second level of of transmission error right and then the third is that I edit it and then I edit it again and then I edit it again and it just keeps getting farther and farther from what actually happened and you know this whole theory of memory um, that where that that you you know you every time you actually remember something you then when it goes it's not like pulling a file out of your computer and putting the file back in without making any changes pulling it out and reading it when you put it back in you put it back in with today's remembrance of it and so every time you remember something it gets farther and farther from the, the original experience yeah I didn't mean embellishment yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, there was, a, there, for instance, I, there's a there's a, ch- a long chapter in here about a, a Moroccan trip, and, um, and on on part of it, I was with a friend. Uh, speaking of nonfiction, I erased him. He's not there anymore. I'm alone on this on that trip. I don't I don't say he's not there. I'm not lying, but he's not there. Um, and it's assumed that I'm alone because I'm alone everywhere else. And so, um, but it, he and I remember this story that I tell, one of the stories that I tell in here, completely differently. Um, and we know we know that because we met up ten years later, and we'd both been telling the story, <laughs> and uh, it, it had morphed in two different ways. As long as you're not adding friends. What's that? Yeah, not adding friends. Yeah, yeah, imaginary friends. I think I, you know, it, it's uh, you, exactly. If I really believed in them, yeah, no, I think it's, uh, I think it's, you know, nonfiction is wide open these days. You can do whatever you want. I, you know, it's just, a, it's, a, it's, a, it, you really can. It's like it's a right. If you do the degada style, it all depends on the on the on the value of the final written product. Nobody cares whether it really happened to you or not. I do feel like I have a certain kind of contract with the reader that this is supposed to be true and that I should remain in some as, as clear a relation to what actually happened as possible. Um, uh, but how, how real it is, I have no idea anymore. All right. Is that, is that good? Thank you so much for coming out. Uh, I feel like you, you voted for me instead of Obama, but that's okay. You can't serve another term anyway. Really appreciate it. And I'll, I'll be signing up here. All right, let's give Tom Lutz another, another hand, everyone. Great job. Great job. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.